We have before us today what some have called the Mount Everest of Psalms. Others uh, I read that described it as the Grand Canyon of the Psalms. And really, anything that is the biggest applies to this. So this is the Titanic Psalm. This is the whatever you want to say uh, Psalm. Uh, because if you know anything about Psalm 119, it probably is that it is huge, okay? It, the, the size of this psalm is enormous. To give you an idea, Psalm 119 all by itself is longer than 30 books of the Bible, okay? That's a long psalm, don't you think? And uh, it's twice as long as any other psalm. So this one psalm is... Uh, There's 176 verses in this psalm. It's very, very long. And the length of the psalm has actually been put to some good use down through church history. And there's a couple stories about this. I'll share one. Uh, And this is back uh, when England was going through, ancient England was going through a lot of religious struggles. There was a pastor named George uh, Wishard who was the Bishop of Edinburgh. And he had been sentenced to death presumably like by hanging, something like that. And uh, so the day of his execution arrived, he was taken to the gallows, and the custom was that you were allowed to choose one psalm that was read before you died. And so he said, I choose Psalm 119. As they're reading the psalm, a courier arrives with word of his pardon, and his life was saved. So... He's glad he didn't choose 117 accidentally instead of 119. There's only two verses in 117, so he would have been, he would have been uh, dead. There's other stories like that. Uh, but again, 176 verses. And so I know right now what's going through your mind. How long is this sermon going to be? <laughs> and in reality, how do you tackle something that is that, uh, that long? So we're not going to do all of it. I'm not even, I'm not even going to read, uh, I'm just going to read a portion of it. Um, but what we can do is we can, we can take a tour of Psalm 119. It's kind of like when you go to the Grand Canyon, you can't see all the Grand Canyon, but you sort of see the highlights of the Grand Canyon. And that's kind of what I'm going to have to do today to tackle this uh, one psalm. But like the Grand Canyon, there are some wonderful, lovely vistas of truth that I want to highlight for you. So let's begin our little tour here. And the first thing we note, if you just look at Psalm 119, is that it has no authorship ascribed to it. Other of the Psalms will say, you know, a Psalm of David or whoever, but this one, nothing. So like maybe the Sphinx or Stonehenge or some other kind of famous work of art, we don't know who did it. And maybe that helps us just focus on the merit of the art itself. Psalm 119 is called a Torah psalm, okay, Torah psalm. The Torah is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Old Testament, the books ascribed authorship to Moses, and this is a Torah psalm, and the Torah psalms are psalms that highlight the value of God's word. They're celebrating the treasure that is God's word. So everything that this psalm is praising about God's word is deriving from five books of the Bible. And I just want to note that to you because we stand here with 66 books of the Bible. Imagine if he had 61 more books of the Bible to write about and to praise God about and the works of Jesus and all of that. He didn't 
have any of that, and yet he writes this like monumental masterpiece about the glory of the word of God. And that's what this psalm is all about. It is a, it's a psalm about God's word. In fact, every verse in the psalm, with a few exceptions, and even those are debatable, have some reference to God's word in it. Every single one. So this is the Torah psalm of all Torah psalms. You might remember when we began in Psalm 1, we began our series, we started in in Psalm 1, we talked about how Psalm 1 is a Torah psalm. In fact, Psalm 1, Psalm 19, and Psalm 119 are all Torah psalms. And people see that sort of numeric coincidence and say, maybe that's not a coincidence. Maybe the editors that put the psalms together intended in some way for that numeric pattern to say something. Now here's where it gets really interesting about Psalm 119. The Holy Spirit inspired the psalm writer to organize his psalm according to the Hebrew alphabet. In fact, if you look, take a moment if you have a Bible, and just look at Psalm 119, you'll notice that there are sections in it. In fact, there are 22 sections in Psalm 119. Every one of them has a heading to them. And the heading are letters sequentially in the Hebrew alphabet. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and he walks through every one of them. Not only do the headings go alphabetic, but every verse under that heading starts with the word corresponding to the letter that it is in the section of. That was a terrible sentence, but do you know what I mean by that? Okay? So... To help you understand what he's doing here in the English, if this was done in English, this is what it would be like right here. So you have the heading, A, every word under A, every verse, starts with a word that starts with the letter of the heading, A, 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 A. B, second one, every verse begins with a B. C, every one begins with a C, and so forth. And uh, he does this through the entire Hebrew alphabet, so every, uh, the Hebrew letter is the heading, every verse begins with a word starting with the letter, every section under the letter has eight verses, every verse has two lines. And we see in this that there is a very strict mathematical literary structure that he organizes this psalm according to. And I like what C.S. Lewis says about this psalm, here's what he says, it is a pattern It is a thing done like embroidery, stitch by stitch, through long, quiet hours for love of the subject and for the delight in leisurely, disciplined craftsmanship. The order of the divine mind embodied in the divine law is beautiful. What should a man do but try to reproduce it so far as possible in his daily life? And I like how Lewis describes it like embroidery. And I don't know a thing about embroidery here. Maybe some of you are into... Like, I don't know the difference between embroidery and cross-stitch, and just right there I lost cred with some of you, right? But embroidery is, you know, it's a, it's a pattern. It's a stitch pattern, in and out, over, under, whatever it might be, and that is done over and over and over again with this color and this color and this emphasis and this thickness. And when you step back from that embroidery or that tapestry, all of a sudden you see the big picture of what that artist was communicating, And that's what Psalm 19 is like. These verses come, bam, 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 bam. There's not even necessarily logical connection between any of these verses. 
They're just like, they're all by themselves, by themselves, following a similar pattern. You read it 176 times and you step back and you're like, the word of God is a treasure. Because that's the picture through the stitching that he is trying to communicate. So Psalm 119 uses a two-line, alphabet-following, letter-repeating stitch pattern about the treasure that God's word is. I also find it interesting that Psalm 119 is almost exactly the center of the entire Bible. Like if you, if you want to look at half here, half here, where's the middle? 117, it's kind of debatable, I think, but it's basically, it's right there in the middle of the Bible. I don't know if that's coincidence or not. We might get to heaven and find out that that was intentional somehow. But is it a coincidence that the center of the Bible is about the Bible being the center of us. Indeed, that's the point of Psalm 119. Here's some more things in the tour, okay? Psalm 119 uses words that are essentially synonyms, but they are different ways of saying the word of God. So for example, and I take this from uh, the ESV Study Bible's description of these, the law, it says the law, the law, the law, that is the instruction of God. The testimonies of God. This is what God solemnly testifies to be his will. The precepts of God, what God has appointed to be done. The statutes of God, what the divine lawgiver has laid down. The commandments of God, what God has commanded. The rules of God, what the divine judge has ruled to be. And of course, the word of God, what God has spoken. And you may not have, uh, be reading an ESV Bible, and they'll translate these words slightly differently, but essentially, those are the words that are the, are the threads that he is using in his stitching of this psalm, and you hear them over and over again. Now, I'm not doing all of Psalm 119, but I would be remiss not to mention three verses that are famous Christian heritage verses. These are the ones that, as you're reading Psalm 119, you're like, okay, I've never heard this, never heard this. Oh, I know that one. Never heard this, never heard this. Oh, I know that one. These are the three. And I just want to mention them because they're so wonderful. Verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Verse 18, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. And then 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Now, so far, we haven't really read any of Psalm 119, even though I'm sort of teaching, preaching Psalm 119. And I got thinking, how am I going to do this? There's 176 verses in this psalm. How am I going to tackle this? And I thought, well, maybe I'll just do one of the 22 sections, just as a sort of example, right? But then how do you choose amongst the 22 sections to, to what to preach. And so I got looking, and I, so I saw the first section, and then the second section, if you look, notice what the title of the second section is. Do you see it? Beth. And I just thought, at a church named Beth L. Church, what section should I probably do? Of the, it just seems to me that I should do the Beth section. Doesn't it seem logical? And so that's what I'm going to do. God didn't tell me to do it. It just seemed like a nice way to do it, all right? So we're just going to look at this one eight-verse, two-line, all the words beginning in the Hebrew with that, what we would say, be, 
one section and get a sense of what Psalm 119 is like. So here we go. Verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. And that's what Psalm 119 does for 176 verses. Just pounds it home. And again, there's... Even as I read this, you could pull any one of those out and they would stand alone. There's not like a logical flow. He's not developing any thought. It is an acrostic alphabet pattern. And this section that we have before us begins with a question. How can a young man keep his way pure? That question has led some scholars to suggest that the author of Psalm 119 was himself a young man. And that he's asking that question out of his own like stage of life. He's sort of reflecting biographically on how can I, and by the way, man or woman, we could have been a young woman, we don't know, who would have have written this. But I just wonder, does that maybe change your perspective a little bit on the psalm itself? To think that this majestic, deep, well-thought, well-organized psalm might have been written by a teenager. And to hear that young man or young woman's heart for God and heart for God's word, what an example it is. In fact, just the question in verse 9 indicates what kind of young person this would have been. How can a young man keep his way pure? Okay, the question indicates this guy's, his life is oriented towards the things of God. He cares in his life about what God thinks about him and whether the direction of his life is the way that God would want him to live and to think morally and spiritually about his life. How, how can a young man keep his way pure? Just the question speaks volumes. If after this message, young person, if you came down here at the front, you said, you know what, that message kind of struck a chord in my heart. And I'm wondering, I want God's blessing in my life. I want to know that I am living in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. How can I know that, Pastor Steve? You know what I would say? The fact that you are asking that question tells me a ton about your character. And young people, can I just, let me just ask you, What is keeping you as a young person from being passionate for God and living for God and caring about the things of God? You see an example right here in this this young man, passionate for God, passionate for his word. I'll tell you what's keeping you from that other than your sin nature, an entire culture that is urging you and pushing you in the opposite direction of Psalm 119. Nobody in this culture is going to somehow encourage you to worry about whether your life is being lived with purity, are they? In fact, they're going to, they're going to mock that, and they're going to laugh at that, and they're going to think that's entirely silly. 
And yet we read in the Psalms, how can my life be pure? I was blessed to become a Christian myself as a young, as a young boy. And I don't know what would happen in my life if I would not have met the Lord in my youth. But here's what I can tell you. I sure am glad that I knew him when I was young. And no doubt we've got many adults here that if they could talk to you, they would say that they came to faith later. And they would say, praise God for his grace. Praise God for his forgiveness. But if they could go back and do it again, they would sure want to know Jesus when they were young. Amen? Older people? Okay. And young people, here you are, you're in this time of life that the culture says, these are the years for you to sort of sow your wild oats and live in the way that you want and then settle down and get serious about these things. I'm here to tell you there is nothing in the Bible that says that. In fact, it is the opposite of that. It holds up Daniel and Joseph and even Jesus himself, who when he was 12 is in the temple talking theology with the religious leaders. At 12, young people... These are times where your life can matter for God. It does matter for God. He cares about those directions in your life. He cares about the passions of your heart. He cares about the direction that your life is going. And to hear this heart, this young person, if indeed that is the case, crying out to God, how can I live a pure life? Does that resonate in your heart? Do you care? Well, Psalm 119 gives an answer for how this can happen by guarding it according to your word. Your word. Now, whose word is your word? That's God's word, right? God's word is acting in that young man's life like a guard, like guardrails in his life that he is living within the teachings and the precepts and the statutes of God's word. Think of, think of Daniel as an example of this. If you know the story of Daniel, he was a good Jewish boy living there in Israel, and, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar comes and wipes him out and hauls all of these, uh, the top ones, only the best and the brightest, they took back to Babylon. And so Daniel finds himself, he's not with mommy, he's not with daddy, he's now in a pagan culture. And he's under the king, and no doubt he could have had any food, any woman, anything he wanted. This is like... This is like, uh, you know, college students in Florida on spring break, away from mommy and sort of this kind of like, hey, it's whatever you want. What happens here stays here. What happens in Babylon stays in Babylon. That's what he was told. You're free now to sort of do what you want. And what happens so often with young people that grow up in the church and they go away to college and now all of a sudden they have freedom and the lifestyle that suddenly is shown is the way that they would have lived if they didn't have mommy and daddy over them. But now the real them, the real character is on display. And we see in Daniel that in that moment he says, I'm not gonna eat the food because God's law says I'm not supposed to eat that food. And I don't care if I'm in Babylon, I wanna please the Lord. What were the guardrails in Daniel's life even in Babylon? What God says. God's law. Students and young people, too often you have no guardrail. Or worse, your heart is guarded according to your friend's word. But mom, my friend says, 
Oh, well, let's allow that to be the Bible now. Your friend says. Or the lifestyle choices of your heroes in popular culture. Actress so-and-so, singer so-and-so, athlete so-and-so, there are pictures on your wall of your bedroom. You admire them. You look up to them. They're influencing you. You're living according to their word. And yet, we look at all of these people and we say, how's it working out for them? A week ago, I was at this camp in North Georgia, dynamic camp, tons of young people, and I mentioned in one of my messages, I said, um, and this is the camp, by the way, when they show up there, they have to turn their phones in, they have no digital connection to the world at all for that whole week. It's amazing what God does when children don't have connection to the, the, uh, the digital world. Anyway, so they don't know what's going on, Well, but I did, and so in one of my messages, I mentioned that the lead singer of Lincoln Park had committed suicide the day before. And I saw on the, like, the reaction from some of these, they like, they like couldn't believe it. And of course, he is in a long line of cultural heroes who in their singing or their whatevers have told people how to live, and yet what happens? They end up despairing of life. They end up taking their own life like he did. How can a young person keep their way pure? Here's what God's word says. By guarding it according to God's word and no one else's. I pray God would use that maybe in a young person's heart right now. Verse 10. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That verse 11 especially, famous verse, and rightly so. And I came, I came across just a little outline of that verse. James Montgomery Boyce did this. It's so good. I just want to share it with you. And maybe you memorized this verse like I did in the King James back in the day. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And so he takes that uh, translation, and he, here's his outline of the verse. The best thing, thy word, hidden in the best place, my heart, for the best purpose, that I might not sin against you. It's just so simple. It's so good though, isn't it? What a, what a profound difference that can make in our lives. Now I'm standing here, I'm, today I decided sort of last minute, I debated with Jennifer, the lovely Jennifer who was in the second row. I said, should I wear this or not? I'm not sure. I said, I'm gonna do it. So I decided to wear my Evernote t-shirt and I'm a big Evernote fan. If you don't know what Evernote is, it's a, it's a uh, computer company, uh, it's an app program that allows you to store, like, digitally anything and everything. And it's a massive, it's a very, very powerful program, and I've used it for many years. I have thousands of um, notes in my notebooks in Evernote. I'm collecting stuff from our daughters. They draw me something. I take a picture of it. I just store it. I'm storing, I'm storing, I'm storing. Okay, that's what Evernote is all about. It's a wonderful program, and uh, if you want to check it out, I'd recommend it. And if you sign up and mention me, I get $5 off. So, uh, <laughs> but Evernote is, what's so great about it is once I have my stuff in Evernote, on my phone, I can access that like that. It's all stored, it's in the cloud, it's on my phone, whatever. 
I can just access it like that. I have it stored up, and I can bring it out in just a moment. It's kind of what this is saying here, is that when it comes to God's word, it's one thing to say, I value God's word. I store up God's word like I collect Bibles in my attic. Therefore, I must be storing up God's word. No. Storing up God's word is not the collecting of volumes of God's word. It is the placing and the storing of it in my heart and in my consciousness so that, like with Evernote, I can bring it up in a moment. And we see Jesus himself doing this. How important is this? Satan comes to Jesus in the temptation three times. And every time, the Son of God responds with Scripture that he, by the way, had to memorize in his humanity. He memorized it, and he used it to defend himself against the onslaught of Satan himself. It's one reason I love our Awana ministry, is that it teaches our children at that stage of life when they can memorize so easily, they're storing up God's word in their heart that they may not sin in their life against God. No wonder we are so easily taken down in temptation because we don't have the power of God's word, easy access, right? What is that verse again? I don't know. Yeah, and then we just, we're like, you know, Satan plays us like a cheap fiddle. We need God's word. And this really gets at memorization and meditation of scripture. Do you memorize scripture? Could I just ask you that? No. 98% of the people here are very convicted as I ask that question. And I want you to know that I feel convicted convicted on it as well. Um, Because if I was to assess in my own walk with God, when I was a kid, I could memorize verses just like that. I mean, Awana and all that, I could just do it. I find as I get older, it's not as easy to memorize verses. I have to work harder at it. And over time, especially the last while, I have not been as disciplined in it as I wish that I would be. Now here's my fear, is that my weakness in this area has somehow infected the congregation. And one reason, one indication of this, a few weeks ago when we began Psalm, our Psalm series, we did Psalm 1, okay, if you remember, we did Psalm 1, I said, hey, I'm throwing down a challenge. Memorize Psalm 1 and then Come up here next week and stand on stage with me and we'll quote it together. Now, we only did this at uh, Crown Point, Cedar Lake and HP. We didn't do it uh, there because we just assume all of you already have it memorized. Uh, but we did it here at Crown Point. So I threw out a challenge and said, hey, if you do it, we got a little special prize for you. So the Sunday that we did it, I don't know if you were here or not, but we had maybe over the three services, I would say maybe 25 people that Uh, that did it. On a Sunday that we probably had, somewhere around at this campus alone, 2,000 people here, we had maybe 25 people that did it. Now, I know some people are like, I can't get in front of people. I don't want to do it. Okay, fine, fine. fine. I grant all of you that, okay? But could we sort of look at that and say, maybe this is an area in our church that is somewhere less than what Psalm 119 calls us to? And I'm just saying, is there some way we could up our game here in your own life 
to make Scripture a regular part of that daily experience, whether it's memorization, writing on a piece of paper, carrying it in your pocket, having it on your dashboard, whatever it is, but where you're allowing God's Word to be a regular part of your awareness and consciousness through the day. I think that could only help. And this is where I think Psalm 119 is so challenging, and this probably is the most important thing I'm going to say in this, in this message, is that it's a corrective because what it's, what it's showing us is what our hearts should be like for God's word. You read through this, and even the little section that I read, with my whole heart, with all my passion, it's like these big, like, man, I am so for this. The Holy Spirit intended these words to show us what we should be like. When I am really healthy, when I am walking with God, when my heart is alive to God, there is a passion for God's word that is somewhat like what we see here in Psalm 119. So I want to challenge you. Could you strive, maybe take this Sunday and say, I'm going to use this as a stepping stone in my walk with God, to strive to know Scripture, dare I say, with the same interest or more that you memorize the statistics for the Chicago Cubs, if you're a Cubs fan. Because I know a lot of guys who say they can't memorize diddly squat, and yet they know the batting average of, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the starting lineup. Or could you maybe memorize as well as you know the lyrics of the current song that's out? I have family members, young people like, you know, all this. They could just, you can stop the music and they just sing the rest of the song. Or how about at least with the same level of competency that you know the cable TV channel numbers? I can't memorize anything, but I know one through 450 on DirecTV. Every single show I can tell you what it is. And I mean that somewhat humorously, but I also mean it somewhat convictingly. Do you want to stand before God and for God to say, why did you know cable TV better than you knew my word? I don't have a good answer for that, do you? And that's where someone needs, it calls us to this. Let's love God and his word and put it in our hearts. And notice the section, it goes on with verse 14. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. There's other uh, verses in, in this psalm that do a similar thing where they compare the Bible, the value of the Bible, to money and possessions. So like 127, God's word is better than gold. 162, it's better than finding treasure. Imagine if you're on your way home and there's just a, you find this treasure, how joyous you would be about it. Better than thousands of pieces of gold and silver, verse 72. And what God is doing here is he wants us to realize what is real value in life. And as much as we value possessions and material things, what is so much more valuable is truth from God for life. The gospel, the, the, the revelation of God in his holy word where he has spoken to us and tells us what life is all about and what eternity is all about and tells us about his precious son, Jesus Christ. These words that tell us you know, what's valuable? This is what Jesus asked. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his own soul? Would you rather be a billionaire, trillionaire, or hold in your, hold in your hands the word of God that tells you how you can know him, have your sins forgiven, have eternal life? Which would you choose, right? What a treasure the word of God is. Now this section 
and really the rest of Psalm 119 are filled with words that summarize how we should respond to God's word. And I struggled a little bit for, you'll put the next slide up if you would. You'll see I, I wrote down here, how should we think, feel, and respond to God's word? How should we do this? Well, here are some words that Psalm 119 uses. Delight. Delight in God's word. This is 14, 16, 24, 35, 47, 70, 77, 92, 143, and 174. And maybe a few I missed. Delight in God's word. I delight in your commandments more than riches. A genuine joy in what God has spoken. Here's another one. Love. This is 47, 48, 97, 119, 127, 159, 163, 165. Here's a great summary one. This is verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. Can you say that with me? Oh, how I love your law. Now, did I just make a bunch of hypocrites out of us here? To say to God, oh, how I love your law. But do we really? Do we love the word of God? And that is, again, where this psalm is so helpful because it is descriptive, but it is itself prescriptive. In this way, it's kind of like the Pledge of Allegiance or America the Beautiful. Why do we, why do, we do the Pledge of I pledge Allegiance to the flag of the United States of America? Why do, we, why do we do that? Why do we have the national anthem that is played? Or why do we sing America the Beautiful? Because those things remind us, even when maybe we're not what we should be as citizens of of America, right? Or even when America is not that beautiful, the song reminds us of what it could be. And that's what Psalm 119 is. You read it, and it is is a, a reminder of the kind of people, in terms of our valuing of the Word of God, that we should be, even when we're not. And that morning when you wake up and you're like, I'm tired, or this feels like duty to me to read God's Word, It reminds us of when we are on our A game, when things are really spiritually alive, this is what it looks like. To love God's word and to treasure it. Let it summon us. Oh, how I want to love your law. God, please help me to do so. Here's a third. Obedience. How do I respond to God's word? Obedience. This is 3, 4, 10, 21, 29, 32, 36, 44, 59, 88, 112, 115, 145, 146, 166, 167, 168, and no doubt a whole lot more of them. Over and over and over again, it's not just, I love your law and I'm glad I can live whatever way I want to. No, it is, I love your law and because of the value that I see in your law, it shapes the way that I live. Now I want to live by your precepts. I want to live by your statutes. I want to please you, oh God. That's how we know when we really love something, right? When we really love a truth, we live by it. We, like, obey it. This week I got my four-year-old daughter, Kira Lee, uh, awake. I snuggled with her in bed, and I said to her, I said, sweetheart, Daddy really needs you today to be obedient to Mommy. And she looked at me and she said, what if I said, I'm sorry right now for all the times I'm going to disobey today? (laughs) 
I was like, that's like adult level rationalizing, isn't it? On the front end, I'm just going to say right now, I'm sorry. Even as I sort of plot the different ways I'm going to disobey mommy today. And that's what Psalm 119 never does. It never rationalizes, it never sort of explains away disobedience, but over and over and over again, it, it talks about obeying and living according to his word. And, you know, you, you read Psalm 119 and you just sort of are like, especially, you know, maybe in a, a season of dryness, you read this and you're like, how, how could anybody sincerely write this and feel this way and respond to God's word in the lavish, beautiful words and descriptions that we find in Psalm 119. How can I love God's word? How can I delight in God's word? How can I obey God's word? And it seems to me that the way that we get there is to realize what life would be like if God had never spoken. Just imagine with me for a moment. There is no written revelation from God. In fact, there's no revelation of any kind. People talk about the three categories of revelation, the world, general revelation, the skies tell us that there is a God, uh, the, the Son of God, the revelation, the incarnation of Jesus, and the Word of God. If there was none of those, just imagine there's nothing, there's nothing transcendent. We're just kind of living life here. There's like an iron dome over uh, our existence, and all we have is this, and, and we're trying to find meaning, and what is all this about, and where do we come from, and what happens when we die, and yet there's nothing, there's no truth at all to turn to. Imagine the emptiness of the soul if there was nothing, no revelation from God at all, that there was no Christ, there was no creation, there's no word. And imagine if all of a sudden just one revelation sort of floated down from heaven, God spoke one verse, All we had was one verse. How would you feel about that one verse? The only thing that God has spoken is this one verse. Like we would, this is the most wonderful thing that there is. Here's a word from God. We would memorize it. We would teach it to our kids when they're little. We would, you know, we would write every possible song we could about that one verse. It would be inscribed in stone. We would, we would laud it. We would sing about it. We would teach it. We would treasure that one verse because this is the only revelation that we have from God. And yet, what do we have actually? We, we have a feast of revelation in the Bible. We have 66 books of revelation in the Bible, there are 23,145 verses in the Bible. So how do we come to treasure what we have here? We have to realize what life would be like if we didn't have it. And to see how it has blessed us and tells us about God and tells us about redemption and tells us about reality and tells us about the past and the future. It explains everything that we need for life and godliness. All of it is found in this holy book. And when I understand in my depravity, I I would never understand the Bible. I would never understand this if it was not for God's grace in my life. 
The real way that I come to understand this book in any kind of like redeeming way, it is a work of the Holy Spirit through the gospel where I see that Jesus is the Savior and I give my heart and my life to him. And because of that, God does this work in my heart. I am born again. I am regenerated. I'm made spiritually alive. And in that moment, all of a sudden now, I come to realize what a treasure God's word is. And that is why the natural man, Paul writes this to the Corinthians, he can't understand this. He thinks it's foolishness. That's why your friends and family think you're a nut job for sitting for 45 minutes and hearing a message about the Bible. Who would do that? All of you do. Why? Because God's done a work in your heart. Okay? And one of the signs of that work in your heart and in your life is that there is a craving, there is a desire for God's word. The Bible talks about that, crave the pure spiritual milk of the word of God, like babies craving milk. And that's the Christian, now all of a sudden I'm spiritually alive and I'm hungry for it. I want it. It's kind of like, imagine, imagine a starving man. You, have a, you find a guy along the road, he hasn't eaten in days, and you say, hey, let me take you to the grocery store. He's just ravenously hungry, he's on the verge of death. You take him to the grocery store, what happens? You can't get him out of the produce aisle, Right? Yeah, he's eating apple after apple after apple after. You say, hey, man, there's tangerines right over here. Tangerine, tangerine, tangerine. Hey, dude, look, radishes, 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 right? Every single item for a starving man is something to be enjoyed and treasured and experienced. And for us, that's what the Bible is like. There are sections of the Bible. They're, they're apples and, and, and uh, oranges, there are sections of the Bible that are meat and potatoes. There are sections of the Bible that's whatever your favorite thing at the grocery store is. All of that is here in all of its variety, in all of the different genres of Scripture, all of the narratives, all of that is here. And when I am hungry for it, there's something here in all of it that I can savor, like the starving man at the grocery store. And that's what it's like to delight in God's word, to savor it, to treasure it, to know what a value it is, to have the word of God in our hearts. And so then you read Psalm 119 and he's going like, hey, I would rather have this than, I, than gold or silver. Because the hungry man who's about to die, you could say, look, bars of gold. He's like, dude, you got any food, right? Because I, I need food. Gold doesn't satisfy what I need when I'm hungry. And spiritually speaking, these things don't satisfy us, but the word of God can and does and will in our life. So what should we do with it? Well, I decided to do my own ABC description of the Christian's response to God's word following the English alphabet, by the way. So we'll give this a try. We should... Adore it, believe it, confess it, don't ignore it, enjoy it, fail it won't, give it away, hope in it, inspired it is, jot it down, keep it close, live it by, love it by living it, memorize it, need it, obey it, prioritize time with it, quote it, reverence it. Study it, teach it, underestimate it at your own peril. Vociferously read it. <laughs> Wonder at it. This was the tough one. 
Xerox it and pass it around. (laughs) Yearn for it. Zeal for God is what it creates in us. And that's no Psalm 119, because Psalm 119 is a masterpiece inspired by God that calls the people of God to treasure the word of God within the community of God. Oh, how we need to love thy law. And let us pray together. Father, that's our desire. On this Sunday, our desire is that you would up in our hearts the value, our understanding of the value of your holy word. God, we thank you for what it tells us from Genesis to Revelation about the story of God and the glory of God, how it helps us, how it saves us. Father, we pray that in our hearts there would be this increased value and maybe even this Sunday to be uh, one of those Sundays where something that's really been missing in our spiritual life is filled in. Father, I pray that there would be within our hearts a high, high view of Scripture, a trembling at it, a treasuring of it. And Father, we are weak and we're human and we are frail. We're easily led by the vain philosophies of this world and the people that propone it. God, we pray that you would help us to have our hearts and lives guarded according to your word. We thank you, Jesus, for being the word that made his dwelling amongst us. We have seen your glory, the glory of the one and only, filled with grace and truth. To you be the glory, we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. Now, here's what I want to do before we go and all the distractions kick in of the rest of the day. When's the next time you're going to hear a good, I don't know if it's good, but at least a message about the value of the Word of God? What opportunity are you going to have that's better than this one to look at your life and to say, how am I expressing the priority of God's Word in my heart? And I want to just ask, if you were to be practical in your day-to-day life of some way that you could insert God's word into your awareness. And this could be, obviously, reading it. It could be, um, you know, writing, having a verse a day that you write down and put in your pocket. You think about it every time you put your hand in your pocket or something on the dashboard, something on the fridge, whatever it is. Something that would mo- take your game to the next level, Okay. None of us are going to go from here to writing Psalm 119, okay? But we can go from here to here. And what would that be in your life? A step with God's Word. I'm going to give you a second to think about that. And maybe today you could say, I'm going to do that. What if you did it for one week? And you say, I'm going to evaluate next Sunday. And you come back next Sunday having spent a week with a little more time in God's Word and ask yourself the question, do I feel closer to God? after doing that this week? Am I happy I did that? Do I wish I wouldn't have done that? Give it a try, okay?
Oh, how I love thy law. May that be our heart cry here at Bethel Church. God's grace to you all.